and speak to you from something that uh, the Lord gave me some time ago, and I just felt to speak on this today. You know, whenever you're uh, whenever you're coming to sh- to preach somewhere, you know, you guys have to get a much bigger pulpit. You must. Um, you just you want to you really want to to speak something that is really in the will of God, what God wants. And I just felt like this is what God wants today, that we are faced with so many issues, and I want to address some of those. And I'm going to read from Malachi chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and there's a phrase in there that repeats. The Lord is speaking through the prophet Malachi. And... He said, and did not he, in verse 15, and did not he make one, yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. This is, this is the phrase. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Guard your spirit. And let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. And then the, the 16th verse. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. He says it again. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Therefore, guard your spirit. That ye deal not treacherously. I want to talk to you today about the transfer of spirits. The, the transfer of of spirits. Let's just ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your power. We ask you, God, to move in a very special way today. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds today, God. Enlighten us. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. The transference of spirits. There are three spirits. There's God's spirit, there is Satan's spirit, and there's man's spirit. I really want to talk to you today about man's spirit. And there are three things that we could notice about man's spirit. First of all, the nature of man's spirit. The Bible begins by saying that God breathed into the nostrils of man and he became a living soul. The Hebrew word for breath could mean wind. It can mean breath. It can also mean that inner spirit of of a man. In this case, it is reference to the innermost being, the inner self, the inner man. And that's the part of us that can be related to God. When God speaks to us, ordinarily, God does not speak to the body as such. God primarily communicates, not physically and not emotionally, but he communicates spiritually. He communicates with the inner us. So God is saying through Malachi, guard that part of you that relates to God. But not only does it relate to God, but it is that part of us That relates to action. If you can guard your inner spirit, then you can determine the word that will come out of your mouth. You can determine the deeds that will be performed by your hands or your feet or your body because it is in that inner you that actions and attitudes have their their origin. It's in your spirit that they begin. Now, David recognized this, and in Psalm 51, he prayed, renew a right spirit within me. David knew that the affair with Bathsheba that had led to shame and disgrace on his reign as king and now had brought him to his knees in brokenness before God in confession. It had not begun in the physical dimensions of his life. It had not begun simply as a sexual impulse one night, but it had begun in the innermost part of his being. It had begun in his spirit. So when he came seeking restoration and seeking spiritual renewal, he prays to God, renew in me a right spirit, a steadfast, an upright spirit. The only way I can be steadfast and walk upright is to have in me a steadfast and upright spirit. Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, out of the heart 
the innermost man out of the spirit. Therefore, guard your spirit. You know, there was a, a time in American history when 21 million tons of raging water roared down a mountain, ripping trees, crushing cabins, hurling humans high just to suck them to a watery death. On that tragic afternoon, more than 2,000 people perished in a placid valley village of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It was nearly washed into oblivion. Lake Connemaw's Dam had burst in the iron-rich Alleghenies, forever marking May 31st, 1889, as a day of death. And piecing together the causes of that tragedy, officials concluded the flaw that flawed earthen dam just above that, that city had burst as rainstorms drove waters high. The swollen waters spilled over with erosion cutting deeper and deeper. And finally, that dam exploded outward and it belched waters 70 feet high. Trains were tossed from tracks. Houses were skewed by trees. Buildings crumbled. People screamed to their deaths while being swallowed by the angry dark waters. The Johnstown flood has become forever etched deep in the memory of man. Floods are almost always destructive, and, and dams are susceptible to breaking. And because of that, valley authorities have established very rigid codes. They have set rigid codes controlling the structure, the building of water barriers. And men work long and hard hours to prevent another Don, Johnstown tragedy. Our lives are reservoirs of emotion, desires, passions, dammed up by our will. These reservoirs are being flooded constantly with our thoughts, driving passions high, often eroding conscience with sin that breaks forth in rapid fury, destructive in force and tragic in consequence. Our overt actions are really merely spilled over thoughts of the heart. God's word declares, as a man thinketh in his heart, there he is. Therefore, that's what he is. Therefore, the touchstone of effective living is a proper thought life. If we flood our reservoirs with evil, lustful, negative thoughts, our lives will reflect that decision. But on the other hand, if we flood our hearts with proper, holy, righteous thoughts, we reap the fruit of that effort. Paul is careful to admonish young Christians. He was speaking to young people, but he actually, you know, it, it has a meaning for all of us. He said, finally, brethren, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. The nature of the human spirit. But then, you know, you also need to notice that the, there is the capacity of the human spirit. That inner us has the capacity to be indwelt by God himself. Only God himself can reside in the human spirit. That inner you becomes the very holy of holies. And God himself is in that inner you called spirit. But on the other side of that, that inner you also has the capacity to be, to be indwelt by all kinds of evil. God is saying through Malachi that there is going to be banging on your heart and seeking entrance into your life. All kinds of destructive evils. So guard your spirit. People can actually transfer their attitudes. Transfer their spirits. But then we also need to notice the influence of the human spirit. Why would your son or daughter, who was a good student, clean, suddenly quit studying, start going to bars, start drinking? It's the crowd they run with. It's the transfer of spirits. Why is it that a loud, argumentative person can turn a quiet meeting into pandemonium? It's the transfer of spirits. Why would a licentious, lustful person be able to seduce an innocent person? A transference of the spirit of carnality. I have noticed this, and this is not a hard and fast rule, but I have noticed that those who seem to always cause trouble so often, their children also do the same thing. I have noticed that people who are unfaithful in, in their ways, as far as God is concerned, in, in any of their ways, they're so often their children are also. That's spirits do transfer. 
But on the other hand, why is it that the wicked are subdued and turned to God because of their response to a message in a godly atmosphere? It's the same thing, transfer of spirits. I have noticed that faithful people seem to produce faithful children, spiritual people seem to produce spiritual children. People seek those who have spirits like themselves. Amen. I want to I talk to you about three spheres where it's so important to take what Malachi is saying here to heart and guard our spirit. There is the spirit of the world. We need to guard our spirit against the spirit of the world. The word world... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover a lot of things today, a lot of things. You might want to just get the tape, or then again, you may want to forget you ever heard this. But anyway, a lot of things I want to talk about. But the word world is, a view, is, is, of course, used in a various, you know, various senses in the Bible. Sometimes it refers to the physical world. God made the world and the things there in Acts 17, 24. Sometimes it's used... As the world of humanity, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But we're looking at it really in its third meaning, the whole materialistic, humanistic system organized apart from God that ignores God's government and acts independent of him. And of the 245 places that the word world occurs in the New Testament, it has a distinctively evil sense in about 50 So the world, as we're considering it now, consists of the persons, places, pursuits, and pleasures from which God is left out. The 20th Century Dictionary gives the following definitions of world pertaining to the the worldliness, pertaining to the world, especially as distinguished from the world to come, devoted to this life and its enjoyment bent on gain. Another dictionary says, it is that part of mankind that is devoted to the affairs of this life, the ways and manners of man, the habits, customs, and usages of society. Worldly, therefore, signifies something related to this world in fact or in spirit. Worldliness is the opposite of spirituality. This unspiritual world is subject to the deception of Satan, according to what John said in Revelation 12, 19. It's absolutely under his control, John said in 1 John 5, 19. It will finally come under the condemnation of God, according to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. It is incapable of receiving the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, as recorded in John 14 and 17. It is unable to know in a spiritual sense, neither Christ nor his people, the apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. I read a book a long time ago. He was a, really a great writer. He wasn't an apostolic, but he wrote a book called Apostolic Optimism, Dr. J.H. Jowett. And he said something that to me was very powerful. He said, worldliness is a spirit, a temperament, an attitude of soul. It is life without high callings, Life devoid of lofty ideals. Its gaze always horizontal, never vertical. Its motto is forward, never upward. Its goal is success, not holiness. Hearing no mystic voices, it is destitute of reverence. It never worships in rapt silent wonder in the secret place of the Most High God. It experiences no awe-inspiring perceptions of a mysterious presence. It stops at the veil and does not perceive that it is a veil, the thin, gauzy covering of the eternal. It has lust but no supplications. It has ambition but no aspirations. God is not denied. He is forgotten and ignored. Amen. The world is a spirit and it is expressed in things. It defies exact definition because it actually is a spirit. The closest working definition I have found that just seems to say it for me is what John Wesley said. Whatever cools my affection toward Christ is the world. The most complete definition of the word worldliness is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says, verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world... The love of the Father is not in him. 
Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Verse 17, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. But notice especially verse 16. That's the verse that says it all. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The word lust signifies desire, selfish desire. This can be in the physical realm, lust of the flesh. This can be in the realm of the imagination, lust of the eyes. Or it can be in the realm of ambition, the pride or vainglory of life. These three realms may be, you know, perfectly legitimate, but in them we are liable to, to be, and we are exposed to temptation to please self rather than God. When we look in the realm of appetite, you know, that you take the physical first, lust of the flesh, if you cut the H off and spell the word backwards, you have self, which also shows you how far I will actually go to, to make an illustration, to make a point. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, the point is good, self. It is not wrong to desire food. The body desires it. Appetite is a sign of health, but given free reign, Appetite can easily become self-indulgence. Then the lawful becomes unlawful, and the legitimate becomes sin. To eat, to live is essential, but to live, to eat is gluttony. If the body is allowed, you know, it, it, this is actually appetite comes under many headings, not just food. If the body is allowed to become the master of the soul instead of the soul becoming the master of the body, we have yielded to the temptation of worldliness. The ruthless test about anything when it comes to appetite of this body, no matter what it is, it comes down to is it selfish? Why do I indulge in it? Am I under, coming under its mastery at the expense of something more worthwhile? Where is this leading me? Can this be imperiling my spiritual life? There is a spirit here. That's what John is saying in his definition of worldliness. There is a spirit in this. We need to recognize that. Guard your spirit. And then in the realm of imagination, you know, the lust of the eye. When Eve saw that tree was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. Worldliness actually began in Eden. The forbidden tree appealed to Eve's imagination. Something about it fascinated her, stirred within her a desire for its fruit. Satan gained this point through her imagination via the eye gate. That is not to say that love for everything beautiful is illegitimate, but on the contrary, whatsoever things are lovely, you know, whatsoever things appear, all these things, think on these things. Whatsoever things are lovely, that, that's eye gate. Pictures, architects, sculpture, dress, all things were meant to be things of beauty that can uplift. But Satan's aim is to pervert their use and through them make an appeal to the eyes. The great book that Bunyan wrote, you know, John Bunyan wrote, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and we always quote from that. We say, oh, that's a great book. But the greatest book, in my opinion, that Bunyan ever wrote was a book called Holy War. And in the Holy War, he sets forth the manner in which evil, the evil one makes his wicked assault on the citadel of Mansoul. And he said, there are five gates into the city of Mansoul. But Bunyan says that the most vulnerable is eye gate. And that is so true. Through the eye, that's the most vulnerable gate. It's, you know, we can see this everywhere in our society. These appeal to the eyes, advertisement, movies, TV programs, magazines, fashions. They appeal to the eyes. I don't think anywhere else is eye-gate so effective as in the realm of television. We all need to make a covenant with our eyes today. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single... Thy whole body shall be full of light, but if thine eye be evil, the whole body is full of darkness. And how great is that darkness? Some time ago, there was an in-depth study done of those who 
you know, actually brought us entertainment programs, the TV people who were involved in bringing us the entertainment programs. They re- this research represented the cream of television's creative community. Of the people who control television, who actually tell us what we can watch on our networks, 59% were raised in Jewish homes, 25% raised in Protestant homes, 12% in Roman Catholic homes. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but except that the population of, the, of America is 67% Protestant, 22% Catholic, and only 2.2% Jewish. In other words, that the ones who actually bring us programming do not reflect our society at all. At the present time, 93% of these people say they seldom or never attend worship, and 44% claim no religion at all. The study found that 97% of these people believe that a woman has the right to decide on abortion. Only 5% strongly agree that homosexuality is morally wrong. Only 16% strongly agree that adultery is morally wrong. 69% believe that the government should redistribute the income in our society. In other words, it's almost 70% socialistic. And 45% believe that the government should guarantee everybody a job. When asked what groups that they would give the most influence to if they could reshape society, which they're trying to do, they actually place religion next to last. We didn't actually come in last. But you know what was last? The military. (laughs) And you can see what's happening to our military today. Quoting the study, two out of three believe that TV entertainment should be a major force for social reform. That's probably the single most striking thing in this study. Because according to television creators, they say, well, you know, we're just in it for the money. And, and if it sells, we put it on there. It's, it's just whatever the public wants. But this study actually found just the opposite. That's not true at all. They're not in it just for the, for the money. They're seeking to move their audience toward their own vision of a good society. Amen. Programs that belittle, you know, Islamic or Jewish people are not allowed. You'll never hear them, and, and they shouldn't be. But those who are responsible for our entertainment programs, they belittle and demean Christianity and Christians night after night, night after night, night after night. Amen. We better understand that we are in a culture war. We are. And we also need to understand that there is a spirit. What I'm saying is we need to understand and recognize spirits. And we need to guard our spirit against some of these things because those spirits transfer. Eye gate is powerful. You look at the matter of dress. Ladies, you better guard yourself. When a dress is worn for the sake of sex appeal, to be sexually alluring, to inspire sexual desire in a man, that's a glaring example of worldliness. That, uh, there is a spirit to that. You need to guard your spirit against that. But it's also men. You know, men... When clothes are worn so tight as to leave, no doubt that the sexual is accentuated. Or sometimes the pants, you know, are worn in such a way that it looks like they're already almost down anyway. Sister Weiser and I have been tempted, we have to say, when we see somebody walking down the street and their pants are just hanging down, to go ahead and grab them and pull them all the rest of the way down. But anyway... That is an appeal. There's a spirit to that, an appeal to eye gate. There is a spirit to fashion. You know, the majority of men fashion designers are gay. On the show Project Runway, every man is gay, except for a couple whose orientation was unknown. (laughs) But I have a feeling that that they're probably gay too. But anyway, I don't know, but it's unknown. They didn't want to reveal it. Homosexuality is condemned in the Bible as a perversion of God's idea of men and women. So beware. Oh, that's hate speech. That's hate speech. No, I don't hate homosexuals. Not at all. Not the people. 
In fact, we, we have dealt with them over the years. We had a wonderful girl who came out of that world, and we, we love her quite a bit. I mean, she's a great person. But she came out, and, and she said the other day, she said somebody had made an appeal to try to get her back in that world, and she told him, said, no. She said, I recognize the spirit of this, and she said, I don't want to ever be back under that spirit. She said, there's a spirit to that. She said that. I didn't say that. People say, oh, you know, hate speech, hate speech. No, 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 it's not the people. But I'm not going to approve. See, it, people say we're intolerant. It's not, it's not the tolerance that people want. If it was tolerance they want, that's a whole other matter. But that's not it. It's approval they want. If it's approval they want, they cannot have my approval because the Bible <laughs> is my highest authority. Amen. But we need, to be, we need to understand we're in a culture war. We are in a culture war. And understand there are spirits to things. And those spirits transfer. Amen. Yeah, we need to put some things into our children. Some parents are so brain dead. You know, they say, oh, I don't want to influence my children you know, about God or anything else. What are you talking about? Why won't you? Advertisers will, the press will, TV will, movies will, politicians will, their peers will. Amen. (laughs) Spirit, guard your spirit. Guard your spirit. And then in the realm of ambition, the pride or vainglory of life, Ambition in and of itself is not wrong, but Satan tries to pervert it to that which is wrong. To have no ambition is far from commendable. To aim at nothing and hit it is not a virtue. To slouch through life and call it humility is false. It is not humility. It's laziness. God means for us to be ambitious, aspiring, eager to succeed, but with the right motive. Paul said to Timothy, study, literally be ambitious. Paul said of himself, I press toward the mark. The vainglory of life is ambition, degraded and perverted to that which is unworthy. Pride of life is life lived without reference to God. As when a person wants to be their own boss, wants no control, they're ruthless, self-assertive, they're boastful. When self-interest and self-advancement and self-aggrandizement are mastering motives, all of this is the pride of life. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan points out, and he's my favorite expositor of all time, he points out that the word life in this connection stands for livelihood. It's the same word that is found in 1 John 3, 17 that is translated this world's good. It means the swagger of livelihood, the braggadocio of livelihood, the power that money gives to a person to one-up their neighbors and hold it over them. We can all see in our mind's eyes something we know that is the personification, you know, somebody we know that is the personification of the pride of life. Maybe you are somebody like that. Ambition to succeed was not what the Lord was condemning when he gave the parable of the rich fool. Planning and saving for the future are commendable. It was the complete obsession with success and prosperity. It was his absorption with the immediate financial interest to the neglect of everything in his life that was spiritual and his boastful pride in his own achievements that the Lord censured for his saying, my fruits, my barns, my goods, my soul, he drank me merry. It was this attitude of heart and mind that called forth the divine rebuke. So is he that layeth up treasures for himself. And is not rich toward God. The test of ambition is a searching one. And the challenge is very personal. And each of us must face it. Why do you want wealth? Why do you want wealth? Do you want it to help God's kingdom? Do you want it to do good? Or do you want it just because you can walk with that air of wealth? Yeah. Why do you want fame? So you can just be in the limelight. Why do you want position? So you can walk on other people. You can manipulate. You know what? One of the big sins of the church, and I think it stinks in the nostrils of God, is how much politics in the church, any church, every church. Amen. 
It is this same thing. It is worldly, worldly, worldly. Amen. Are any of these your ambitions? If so, self, that ugly thing, that usurper, that intruder is showing its horrible face. The vainglory of life is mastering you, and this is worldliness. There is a spirit to that. It can get a hold of you. Guard your spirit. Amen. Because that is a spirit that can transfer. Worldliness is something which is in opposition to God. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. Here are two clearly defined opposites. Love for one usurps the rightful place of the other. The human heart must worship something. If it idolizes the things of the world, giving them its devotion, sacrificing to them its scruples and bestowing upon them all its labor, then it ceases to worship the things of the Spirit. Worldliness, therefore, is anything which captivates the heart's affection in the place of God. One man said, golf is my God. And you say, oh, Brother Weiser, please don't preach against golf. No, golf, is. there's nothing wrong with golf. But in this man's case, it had become his idol and had ousted God. Worldliness is idolatry. That is what Paul was talking about when he writes concerning the ungodly. They worship and serve the creature, the creature more than, literally, rather than the creator. They idolize the material. They exalt the human. They glorify man. They remain in the realm of the seen. They never penetrate to the unseen. They live merely in a world of things, human achievements, and worldly pleasures. Men and women are exalted. Technology is extolled. God is expelled. The creature counts for more than the creator. The attitude of the Christian is the very reverse. We see beyond the things of nature to the creator who made it all. We look beyond the human to the divine that gave us breath. Worldliness and carnality are poles apart. They're as different as a pygmy and a giant. We can understand why James writes that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So worldliness is something which is utterly and fundamentally contrary to God. What fellowship hath light with darkness? How can two walk together? Unless they be agreed. Hear me today. And this is Brother Weiser saying this. Running around with worldly people will make you worldly by association. Dating a non-Christian or even a worldly Christian, which is a contradiction in terms. But dating a non-Christian or even a worldly Christian can make you worldly by the transference of spirit. But there is something else. Paul said, be not deceived. Evil communication corrupts good manners. You take on the characteristics and attitudes of those you associate with. The human spirit acts like a sponge in that it absorbs whatever spirit it comes in contact with. I read something Edith Schaefer wrote. I thought it was very powerful. She said that when she was a little girl, her mother would often say to her, Edith, I know just who you've been playing with today. She knew because, she said, I'd become something like the other little girl, whichever one it was, enough like her so that the girl could be identified by my changed accent, by my mannerisms, and by other telltale changes. Children often copy other children quite unconsciously, but the thing is, so do adults. We are affected by the people we spend time with in one way or another. God makes clear to us that not only is it a sin to bow down to idols and worship and serve them, but there is an effect which follows very definitely that people who worship idols become like those idols. That's why there's safety in the church. That the word cleanses us. It's here. The washing of water by the word. That's why the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourself together and so much the more, not the less, as we see that day approaching. Beware of the spirit of this world. Guard your spirit because it will transfer. 
But there is another realm where we need to make sure we guard our spirit because there is a spirit of the church, a spirit of the church. We need to protect that spirit, and we need to guard our own spirits against things that would cause the church problems. Every church is different. There is a spirit of a church. Every church has a direction, a vision. And if you get people going another direction, then you get people trying to tear the church apart. I knew of a particular church, and there was a lady who attended that church, and she passed away. She loved the church, and her son was wealthy, very, very wealthy. And he told the pastor, he said, Pastor, he said, my mother loved this church, and in her memory, I'm going to build you a church. I'm going to, I'm going to pay for everything. I, I will build the church. I will put in there anything you want. I'm going to have a nice kitchen, modern kitchen, everything just paid for. And he said, in that kitchen, you can have anything you want. And the ladies were in that kitchen one day, and they were talking about, you know, well, what do we want in this kitchen? And one lady said, you know what I think would be great if we could just have one of those automatic potato parers, you know, just that would be great. And another lady said, oh, I don't think that's good at all. Said, I like the old ways. We can, we can talk. I think what she meant was, you know, she said fellowship. We use fellowship, but that's a euphemism for gossip sometimes, sometimes. And so the, no, the lady said, I think we should have an automatic one. No, 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 we, we need to do it the old way. So it's split, pro-potato pair, anti-potato pair. Right down the middle, the ladies. The ladies took it home to the father, to the husband's. Well, husbands are supposed to be the head of the house, but there is a rule that most of us live by, and if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. So you kind of, whatever your wife says, no matter what you really feel, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that too. So the husbands join with the wives. Now you had families, pro-potato pair, anti-potato pair, and the church split right down the middle. That is so silly. What a silly thing. To split a church. <laughs> but you know what? I've seen things even sillier. It's hard to imagine, but I've seen things even sillier. You must guard your spirit against anything that would harm the spirit of your church. Attitudes can come in, and people can come in and injure the body. And a strong spirit can actually subdue a weak spirit. A church in unity can be infected by a strong individual of another spirit, and that spirit can spread until strife and division come. I have seen it in my ministry over and over. People are out on the field, and they all they all have this, this super, super spiritual, you know, I'm super spiritual, and they do this. And the pastor will have, he's the one who's actually the, the guardian of the flock. And he has feelings about it. But everybody says, oh, you just say, you just think that, that because you're unspiritual. But he sees some things. I have seen churches split. I know of one particular church split down the middle and has never recovered. Because this super spiritual evangelist also was not morally right. <laughs> Watch out. Watch out. Guard your spirit. Let me tell you, things can come in. God has set up a certain thing in the church. He does it for safety. He does it for this church's well-being. One of them is the word of God ministered by the man of God. You know, Elisha, they were going to make a soup, and people were bringing things for the soup, and one guy who did not have a mission, he was never told to go out. He went without a mission, without permission. He went out and got a wild vine, brought it, and put it in the pot, and, and, he's, and somebody said, there's death in the pot, there's death in the pot. And, and the man of God said, I'll take care of that. He put meal in there and was able to take care of that poison. I say thank God for the word of God that is able to counteract false doctrine. And if we understood... <laughs> The importance of, see, if they wouldn't follow Elijah, that would have been a mess. But they followed God's, and it's so important to follow God's man. You know, I think about Moses. In fact, I teach on, I may have even taught it here. I teach on stress, and Moses was stressed, stressed, stressed. He was in over his head, and God came to him and said, Moses, you really need some help. 
So he said, you know, I'm I'm going to raise up 70 elders. And and they're going to help you. But I want you to notice what he said. He didn't say, I'm going to raise up these 70 elders. And I'm going to put my spirit in these 70 elders. He didn't say that. God said, I'm going to raise you up 70 elders. And he said, I'm going to put your spirit on them. They're going to help you. They're going to have your attitude, your spirit. The people that are under, you know, pastor didn't ask me to preach this. This is what I felt. The people that are under this ministry, that are really under this ministry, have the minister's spirit, direction, goals. And when people come along and start saying, well, I don't like the way Pastor pushes outreach or Pastor pushes prayer or soul winning or, or you know, he talks about holiness. And you know what? I, I want less sermon and I want less Bible study and I don't, I don't like the authority. That little sedition can bring strife into this body. A key to Paul's success was that Timothy and Titus and others were raised up, taught by him, inspired by him, had his spirit sold out through his ways, and harmony and success followed them everywhere. I had a young man come to me once when I was pastoring, and he said, I've been visiting a church, and the worship over there is different. So we need to worship that way. I said, if that's what you want, if that's what you like, you need to go there. Because you're not going to change me because God told me how to lead this church and God will tell me when to change it. Which brings me to another thing. How should a church be run? How do you run a church? Is it by one man under the leadership of God or by democracy or by several men and women? Well, you need to look at the Bible. I have never found in the Bible democracy sanctioned by God as the way a church should run. Great way to run a country. Wonderful way. Not a good way to run a church. Every time the children of Israel decided on democracy, whether it was by Miriam and Aaron or by Korah or by Dathan, it always brought God's judgment. Even the seventh church in Revelation, Laodicea, which means ruled by the people or mob, was condemned by God. God's biblical method is a theocracy, which means that every ministry must have a Moses or a Joshua or a Paul at the helm directing it. Oh, you have to have counsel. You have to have advice. But pity the church that does not have a God-appointed and God-anointed leader who can say, this is the way, and we will walk in it. In the Christian walk, more is caught than taught. You pick up more by the attitude and spirits of a leader and in turn a group than you do by what comes across this pulpit. When the church recognizes and receives of this spirit, it will witness strength and growth and harmony that all the forces of Satan cannot penetrate. And the Sunday school superintendent will take it to the teachers and the youth pastor will take it to the young people and the ministry teams will take it to the families. But let that chain of loyalty be broken by another spirit. And soon there is a breakdown. There needs to be loyalty. You you know that word loyalty. There needs to be loyalty to God first. But then to God's man. In Palestine, there are flocks of sheep, but there are herds of goats, and they're plentiful. They dot the countryside, clutter highways, crowd streets, and towns and villages. Sheep have shepherds. Goats have goatherds. The shepherd with his long staff walks in front of the sheep. They crowd around him, sometimes even hindering his movement. They follow him. But on the other hand, goatherd, they carry a short stick, and they have to walk behind to keep the goats together, moving in the right direction. And he has his hands full because goats are individualists. They're impulsive. They're self-willed. They dart off in all directions on personal missions of their own. You never know. You know, you can have a sheep calling contest. They're common. They, they, know their, they know their shepherd's voice or maybe a sound of a pipe or whatever. They know it, and they'll come to him. But if you were to announce, we're going to have a goat calling contest, they would laugh at you and say, lots of luck. You're not going to have a goat calling contest. Goats don't come when they're called. 
Amen. When Jesus mentioned sheep and goats in contrast, he knew what he was speaking about. There's a difference, not only in appearance, but in nature and behavior. Goats, you know, sheep are responsive. Goats are not responsive to leadership. They have to be driven. God deliver us from the goat spirit. Amen, Brother Weiser. God deliver us because that goat spirit transfer. Guard your spirit against it. So there must be loyalty to God first, then God's man, and then to your church. Church hopping is not scriptural. We have religious grasshoppers and church gypsies who can't seem to find a pastor or a church that's good enough for them. I think even if Jesus were pastoring a church, they'd surely find a lot wrong with him. Amen. There's a spirit to that. You know, Paul was talking about how that in the church, he's talking in Philippians chapter 3, there are those with ungodly lives, those with who want the highest positions, those who indulge in destructive criticism, those who are gossip mongers, those that are oversensitive. There's a spirit. And we don't need that spirit in the church. But on the other hand, in Philippians 4, he says, there are the faithful ones that are in the church. There are the willing ones and the ones with vision and the ones with optimism and the ones who are the workers and the informers and the encouragers and the givers. And there's a spirit, and we need that spirit. We want that spirit in the church. That spirit also transfers. And I'm just about done, but I want to I say one other thing. And there's another realm of transfer, and that's the spirit of the individual. We all have our own personal spirit, and those around us have our own, their own personal spirits, and we need to understand that our spirits do transfer and their spirits transfer. We, have, we all have the power of example, and our example influences others. Every person is a new starting point for good or bad in the history of the human race. We are all heirs of ages past. We're the starting point for ages to come. We have inherited forces without being consulted. We will transmit to other ages by the effects of our lives and the influence that we exert on those that we touch. We will, we will transfer. We do not influence by what we say only, but we influence by what, who, how we live. It is what we radiate an example. What spirit have you transmitted? And what spirit have you allowed to be transmitted to you? What spirit are you transmitting to your friends? What spirit? Are you transmitting to your children? Bitter men and women transfer that spirit to all they associate with, and they will produce rebellious and bitter offsprings no, how, no matter how often they go to church. Men and women who are unfaithful in spirit will transfer that to all they associate with, and they will produce unfaithful sons and daughters. You can transfer your spirit. What you are in your inner spirit has a good deal to do with what kind of friends you have and what kind of children you produce. So guard your spirit. And guard your life. Amen. Jesus talked about it. A house. He said that was a cleansed house, but not filled. It was vacant. A vacant house and a vacant life. Those are dangerous, dangerous things. I read an article about a town called Tifton, Georgia. Maybe you've been there. The most interesting thing about Tifton is an abandoned Victorian house filled with thousands of bats. Tift County declared this once elegant house in the town's historic district off limits after a bat specialist said that maybe 20,000 bats had moved in, apparently for good. Now young people call it the bat house, (laughs) and people talk about the smell, which is an unholy mixture of animal urine and decaying wood. And he said, in the summer, it's horrible. I don't think I'm ever going to visit that bat house. What a sight and what a stink it must be. Vacant houses get infiltrated with all kinds of creatures, probably not just bats. And many of these creatures make a mess and create a big stink. And eventually, they ruin the dwelling. 
But it doesn't just happen with vacant houses. It happens with vacant lives. If a person doesn't fill their life with good stuff, if you don't fill your life with something, there are spirits that will move in and take over. What's going on? You need to ask yourself on this Sunday, what's going on in your house? That is the house you live in, the fleshly body you live in. Who has moved in? What has moved in? What has taken residence and is controlling your life? God wants you to stay clean in this world, and that will only happen if you let him move in and fill your life with worship and prayer and service. Fill your life. Amen. Fill it. Fill it. I'm preaching to some folks. You know, you're, you are in danger. You picked up attitude. You picked up spirits. Because you don't have anything in there to counteract that. You need God in your life. You need God to fill every corner of your house and fill, fill your house with good things. Spiritual things. Amen. Do you feel him in this place? I I pray that God has spoken to you today. Let's stand right now. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Oh, God, we thank you. I just hear the word of God. Okay, guard your spirit. Guard. Guard your spirit. Guard your life. Guard your life. Oh, God. Let's wait upon him for a moment. I just feel his presence in this place. Thank you, Jesus. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Drive this home. Drive this home. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I want to open these altars this, this today, and I want you to come. Just come and stand and come and kneel. Pastor's going to come and end this service. I believe that God has ministered. This was in the will of God, so it is for this church today. You need to come talk to God. Come and talk to God. Come and talk to God. Don't leave yourself open. Don't leave yourself open to any spirit, any attitude that is detrimental. Guard your spirit. So guard your spirit. God bless you. Hallelujah to God. Everybody come. Everybody come. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It's a spirit that needs to transfer something that needs to happen in this church and our attitude, our spirit our bodily temple needs to be given up for Jesus our homes, our families I'm going to ask everybody to do some soul searching right now while they're playing and singing maybe our families can come as a unit if your family's here, stand with them we need to give away our spirit and our attitude that loves Jesus Jesus 